This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Yankees Magazine podcast. I'm Hillary Georgie. Joining me is Nathan Akaborski. Hello, Hillary. And Al Sanasiri. Hello. Al, you did a Q&A for our season-long series with the 1998 squad, and you flew down to Florida, spent some time with Derek Jeter. How was that? Oh, it was great. It was great. Every time, you know, I've had the opportunity to um, to meet with Derek after um, his playing career uh, has been really special because he's been able to give me a lot of time for some of the different stories I've put together, and this was no different. Uh, in terms of that, it was a little different in terms of the location. I'd been used to flying down to Tampa and meeting with him in his small, very quaint office in Tampa. This time I was at Marlins Park, uh, and his office is a little bigger than it used to be and a <laughs> um, little bit more lavish, but uh, he's the same, and, and it was really fun to talk to him about um, his experiences on a uh, team that he considers the greatest um, that he ever played on. Al, you interviewed Derek uh, plenty of times when he was a player here. How would you say, if any, in any way, has he changed in terms of, you know, when you interview him now in his post-playing career, is he any different? Or do the interviews go any differently now that he's uh, no longer putting the uniform on every day? Yeah, absolutely. Um, without question, he was, as everyone knows, um, you know, very guarded and private during his playing career. And um, I think that was one of the things that you know, ended up being a strength of his, um, never making a misstep, but never really putting himself in a position where he could potentially say something wrong or offend anyone or sound overconfident in any way, shape, or form or sound boastful or like he was bragging. The first interview I did with him after his career ended, um, I, t I reminded him that he had told me years ago um, that he would never talk about individual statistics until he retired. And I said, well, you're retired, and now I'm going to hit you with a bunch of questions about indi individual statistics and what they mean to you. And he was amenable to it, and he talked about it. And um, so he was always a good interview for me. I've always maintained a tremendous relationship with him. And um, he was always nice then and, and, and really nice to be around, and that hasn't changed. But what has changed is the level of candor. He's very more, much more candid with me um, and the piece that and, – and that has allowed me to ask more uh, questions and questions that I just never would even waste my time with in the past. Um, and that really kind of came out, especially last year when I interviewed him before his um, number was retired, and I asked him to talk about – uh, basically with me to put a list together of the greatest Yankees of all time and I forced him into the into the conversation but to get him to talk about guys like Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and, and all that I know garnered a lot of attention um, and you know rightfully so it was neat to hear him talk about those guys and that never would have happened before this like Hillary said is part of a season-long series where um, 
you know, we're speaking to different guys who were on that 1998 championship club. When you spoke to Jeter, was it, you know, even though it's 20 years ago and he's played, you know, thousands of games since then and so much has transpired since then, was this all still, did it seem to be very fresh in his mind? Like, did you did you see him having to jog his memory to come up with answers or, or was it still kind of right there seemingly pretty fresh? A lot of it was pretty fresh. Um, you know, there were, there were moments that, um, he remembered with with tremendous clarity. Um, you know, one that that st- stood out to me that was really interesting. He actually kind of interrupted me as I was asking the the question, um, and I started the question about they had lost um, their first couple games. They, I think they started, started one and four. One and four. Yeah, yeah I, th- I was going to say. Uh, so I started that uh, question by kind of reminding him that they had started one and four, and he interrupted me and said. Yeah, the world was was um, ending at that point, right. and I said, "You remember that?" And he said, "Yeah, you know, they were going to fire, you know, everybody was calling for Joe Torre's job and benching players, and you know, everything was was over." Um, and then they went on this tremendous run, um, similar to what our team did this year or early on, um, and you know, it seemed like they won almost every game for two months. Um, he did not remember the exact statistic of how many games they had won and you know once they start going or whatever but he could recall the 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 way that um the media was handling their start i think george steinbrenner was putting a lot of pressure on them i think they were feeling it from everywhere but he also remembered how that veteran team was able to keep it in keep things in perspective not panic and that's really why they were able they were able to get going and and really take off the way he the way they did um you know and and i asked him about david wells's perfect game and obviously he was playing shortstop in that game in a key position uh defensively and he he did recall the emotions and the things that he he felt during that game um and was again more candid than he ever was you know he he didn't say he didn't want the ball to be hit to him um he did want it to be hit to him but he wanted it to be hit to him in a let's say easy manner Root, a, a routine ball exactly yeah. no hard <laughs> plays because you know um you know, you don't make a play, and then it and in a perfect game, it's it, even if it's an error, it ruins the perfect game. Um, and he kind of compared it to Doc playing in Doc Gooden's no hitter. If you botch a play, you know, as long as they give you an error, it doesn't really matter. You know, it's still a no hitter, and you know, whatever. But um, so yeah, there were things that he, he 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 could recall, and that didn't surprise me because he's always regarded that year as his favorite team and his favorite season. So He made his first All-Star game that year, too, and mm-hmm. you talked to him a little bit about that. What were his memories of that first All-Star game that he played in? That was cool to talk to him about because he was so young back then, and, um, you know, we all think about Derek now and even, you know, for for so long as this super, super, superstar. But he talked about how he was just in awe of the people he was around, but um, he was almost too shy to mingle with these guys and actually go up to them and have conversations and ask them for advice. And um, He talked about Cal Ripken, who was one of his heroes, and him being there and guys like that. He was just, I wouldn't say overwhelmed, but definitely in awe of the people who were there. Similar to what you did in last year when you were asking him about the all-time Yankees greats, uh, you kind of did a little like quick hit section where you were just mm-hmm. asking him about some of his teammates on that 98 team. What did you think of his answers in that section? W- w- was there anything that, you know, was particularly revealing to you? And 
And how did you, uh, you know, hone in on the the guys that you did want to ask him about? Because I mean, obviously, there's there's 24 <laughs> other guys or whatever that you that you could have brought up, but. Yeah, I tried to identify um, who I thought were his closest friends on the team. And I obviously used my, um, I wouldn't even say research, but my, you know, previous interviews and memories of, of him and things he's told me as who, uh, at, in terms of how I got to that list. So the list was, of course, you know, Jorge Posada and Tino Martinez, who he's, you know, long regarded as, as probably his two closest friends um, in the game. And then Tim Raines, he's always spoken about how fond he was of him. And then, of course, the other core four guys that I didn't mention, Mariano Rivera um, and Andy Pettit. And then, of course, Bernie Williams, who he played with for, for so long. And I know that that they were really close. So that's kind of how I came up with the list. Um, and, and I'll be honest, you know, sometimes we, we copy even our own ideas and how, how well um, it went last year when I kind of put this quick hits thing together. I just wanted to go back with something again. Um, and I think this one went really well too. And, you know, some of the answers were exactly what I expected. Um, his answer know. about Bernie. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say. That I didn't <laughs> expect. You know, the Posada one was, you know, he's a brother to me. Yeah. We all know they were, their best friends and, and all that. The Bernie Williams one, Hillary, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and just the, the kind of awkward silence that I got when I said Bernie Williams. And, you know, Derek actually just put his head, like, put his hand, his head in his hands, um, you know, and, and started to laugh. And, and, you know, Bernie's such a funny guy and a guy that uh, these guys always, uh, you know, playfully poked fun at for, for his different mannerisms and you know, different things he did. So, yeah, he, he that was funny. And, he, you know, he talked about how carefree Bernie was. And, um, you know, that's really all he had to say about him was like it looked like he never cared out there, <laughs> which was funny. But he obviously did. Yeah, I mean, he showed it. Did he win the batting title that year? He did. He did, yeah. yeah. So, And I think Jeter might have led the league in runs or something. You know, they all had – there's <laughs> Everybody had something. Yeah. Like, yeah. It was yeah. kind of crazy. O'Neal, they all had amazing years. Great years. Year. And, and for Derek, I mean, it was really the year – if you look at it from a statistical standpoint, it was really the year he became an elite player. You know, he batted 314, I think, in, in 96 and then dipped a little under 397. Starting in 98 – Obviously, went to his first All-Star game, uh, even with the great competition at shortstop with Nomar Garcia-Para and Alex Rodriguez. But that's really where his career took that that jump to the next level. Eight, 98, of course, 99 was maybe his best year. But yeah, that's, that's where it took off. Really good photos along with this, too. You know, we got the shot of him from, like we said, his first All-Star game was at Coors Field that year. And uh, just, you know... A lot of, it's always good to see uh, see the captain in the pages of Yankees magazine anytime we get him in there, but I feel like the, the photos along with this Q&A just really work well with all the questions that you asked. Well, thanks. I think they're, they're fitting, and um, you know, having photos of him not only in Yankees magazine, but photos of him from his younger years is something I, I think it's important we keep in, in the mix as long and as much as we possibly can for sure i agree with you yeah so check it out in the july issue of yankees magazine it's called winning mentality and again it's part of a season-long series we've got a few more exciting guys lined up to finish out the year so be on the lookout guys all right we'll be right back coming up on this episode you will hear from justice sheffield top pitching prospect in the yankees farm system who nathan met up with in the offseason and then john schwartz joins us for a quick discussion about nathan's feature story about sheffield so stick around 
Hi, this is Aaron Judge. You're listening to the Yankees Magazine Podcast. Recently, Nathan traveled to Tullahoma, Tennessee to meet up with minor league pitcher Justice Sheffield. Nathan, along with Yankees On Demand producer Brandon Mim, interviewed Sheffield about his goals, his past, and the importance of his hometown. Here's some of that conversation. When did you realize you had like a gift with pitching and you said, you know what, I can, this can really take me to the next level? I'd probably say sophomore year. I knew freshman year that I, you know, I could pitch because I was going out there as a freshman on the varsity, and actually, you know, the coach kept putting me out there, and I was actually getting wins and and things like that. And so I knew that I could I could play at the high school level, but I think sophomore was then then when I realized, dang, I could actually go to college or you know actually start doing something um, for this, and that's when I started working out quit football, quit basketball, just started focusing on baseball, working harder. And then probably junior year is when I realized like, okay, like now I know that I could go to college for this. Now let's see if I can get drafted and, you know, playing playing in the pros. So when that happened, I mean, it was just, it was crazy just because I remember being in the outfield talking to Bradley Repke, never forget it, Bradley Repke, my bad. Um, We were in center field during practice and coach Corbin from Vanderbilt, he saw me that summer I was telling him the story about him watching me pitch and stuff. I was like, dang, like, I hope I'll, I hope I go get to go to Vanderbilt. Like, I, that's my dream school, all this stuff. And he was telling me, like, man, you got it. Like, you can do it. And I, you know, personally, I was like, nah, like, I don't know. Like, that's Vandy, you know. I, I maybe go, you know, to uh, JUCO or something. And then it's crazy how things just ended up happening. And then, um, you know, I wanted to get drafted, and they ended up getting drafted. So, when did it first? get into your head that you were going to be a major leaguer someday like was it was there a point in time where you like said to yourself like that's my goal well I think as a kid you always dream about being a big leaguer Mm -hmm. but then I think I want to say after my first full season I really thought that I could be a big leaguer first full season um in in pro ball okay yeah getting into it and then I really thought that I could be a big leaguer and then when I went to Big league camp, and I was with CC, learning from CC. I was watching Tanaka. Um, I was watching Batances. I was watching all these guys, and then going out there, you know, taking in all this knowledge from them, and then going out there and playing against big leaguers. That's when I knew, you know, I had a chance. You know, that I could, I could play in the big leagues. Wow! Yeah, so I know that I could even play in the big leagues. National Player of the Year, it still wasn't. It was still just like a dream, like yeah. Kind of off I mean, the it was. It was. I think it was just so far. I thought it was so far away. Like, obviously, that was the goal. I wanted to get there. Yeah. And I knew it was going to take time and hard work. I still think um, it didn't really hit me until I was in the big league locker room playing next to those guys. Because, like you said, I was when I was getting drafted, I was still getting starstruck. Walking around, seeing Kluber walking around um, with the Indians and... You know, Francisco Lindor, I was I was like, wow, like, these are big leaguers. And, you know, I still get that way now, but it's more so, it's crazy because I can text CC right now and, you know, ask him what he's doing, things like that. Yeah. You know, whereas as I see Kluber and I'm starstruck, and now I'm texting CC and it's just like, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just crazy how things just gradually evolve. With your dad as your pitching coach, what did he what did he teach you? What do you remember from 
you know, the first times he gripped the ball and not just to throw it back to him, but mm-hmm. gripped it to like actually throw a pitch. I, I want to say when he really started teaching me how to pitch was middle school, seventh grade. Um, that was when he, he taught me how to throw a changeup. And at the time, I knew how to throw a curveball, but he would never let me throw a curveball. I used to get mad because all these other kids are throwing curveballs up there, throwing curveballs. And he would never let me throw a curveball, which I think of now because, you know, you see so many guys that are snapping curveballs at a young age and getting hurt in high school. And um, a lot of guys think that's the cause because they're starting early on throwing, you know, ripping sliders and stuff. But when he taught me a change up and taught me, I was actually throwing a two seam, thinking I was throwing a four seam. And then... <laughs> Taught, taught me how to throw a four-seam fastball. And then uh, just things along the lines of just pointing my toe. I still point my toe. I remember that he, he taught me to you know, keep your toe pointing when you, when you do your leg lift. I still do it till this day. It's, just, it's crazy how things just stick with you and you just kind of work it into your game as you go. Kind of have a little motto. Don't forget where you came from. Just mm-hmm. kind of say why it means, it means so much to you. Yeah, um, not, don't forget where you come from. I just, I like that because I want to stay grounded always. I never want to forget about the people who got me here, what got me here, what, what city got me here, what town, what community, because I wouldn't, like I said, I would not be here at all if it wasn't for everything that I've been through with my family, with this community, what they've done for me. I mean, it's just, it, it, you, they get all the credit, honestly, all of them, they get all the credit. And this is just what I live by. Just, you know, remember where you come from. Talk about your parents and your support system. Why Why was it so important? What do you remember about it? And why was it, why was it so important to have them all around you? Well, I remember them not missing a game. If I was pitching, they were always there. If I ever needed anything, they were, they were there. I mean, I wouldn't be talking to you guys right now if it wasn't for them. You know, my grandparents, my parents, um, especially, you know, those four. They, they've been here since I was... You know, a little kid, and they've traveled the world. They've spent all this money for me to be able to do what I needed to do to be successful, and you know, have fun and 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 you know, live out my dream. And it's crazy because I sit back and I'm thinking, like, man, like I can never repay them for what they have done for me. But you know, uh, it's just it's it's wild um, to have a support system that I have. What's your ultimate ultimate goal, ultimate dream for yourself? My ultimate goal and dream is to, you know, have my parents not ever have to work again, um, have to worry again about anything. And that's, that's everything that I could give them, but I know it still doesn't repay everything that they've done for me. But that's, that's just what I want to do in the long run. And, you know, I can get into personal goals and all that stuff, but in the long run, I just want to make sure my family's, you know, taken care of and, you know, they won't even have to work another day in their life. Two summers ago, right at the trade deadline, you're in the swap with for Andrew Miller. Mm-hmm. Just kind of talk about how that all went down. I mean, obviously your name was mentioned, mentioned in other uh, trade rumors here and there, yeah. but just kind of talk about that process from the rumors until you actually got the call. And... Yeah, I thought I was, I was actually in Winston-Salem. Um, North Carolina getting ready to play I'm in the hotel room I'm really I'm about to start the next day and it's getting kind of late so I'm getting ready to go to bed and then we're watching ESPN and all these rumors happen oh Jonathan Lucroy is is possibly going to the Indians and I'm like oh man it's got to stay up now so I'm on Twitter looking it up like 
am I going, calling my agent, hey, am, am, I, am I in this trade, what's going on, he doesn't know anything, and I'm just, don't know anything, so it gets late, I end up finding out no, that I'm not in the in that actual trade, so I'm like, okay, good, I'm just go go to sleep, get some rest, get ready for my start tomorrow, roll around, I feel like I slept like maybe two hours, it's like seven in the morning, I'm getting a call from Carter Hawkins, he was our uh, head minor league guy, and I answered the phone, and he's he said, hey, what are you doing? I was like, I just woke up, you know, <laughs> I'm just woke up, like, why are you calling me? And he's like, okay, well, I'm about to wake you up a little bit more. You just got traded to the Yankees for Andrew Miller. And, uh, you're going with Clint Frazier, and there's going to be some other guys to be named later. And, like, I literally had to, like, pinch myself. <laughs> I was like, what? Like, no, like, no chance. And it was real. I ended up getting traded. Uh, he told me Brian Cashman was going to call me, and... That's when I knew it was real. So then I had to pack my things. Couldn't even ride the bus back to Lynchburg, Virginia that night with the team. I had to get on a flight, fly back to Lynchburg, and then um, pack all my things. And we had an off day the next day, so that was good. I got to get that extra day of travel time because I drove down to um, Florida. But it was real, and it was, you know, it was awesome. But then at the same time, I was very, very sad. It was very bittersweet because... I had guys that I played with since I got drafted in rookie ball, low A, and then high A. And, you know, just to all of a sudden say, see you later. I won't, I don't know when I'll see you, but I'll see you, see you when I see you type deal. You know, that was tough. But knowing that I was getting traded to the Yankees, I mean, who could ask for anything, you know, anything more? I mean, knowing that I was going to get to wear the pinstripes one day and, you know, hopefully get up to the Bronx one day and um, all those legends that wore that, wore those jerseys and, you know, had the New York Yankees hat on, uh, hat on their head. Like it was, it was incredible to think of picture myself actually playing for the New York Yankees. Probably sometime soon, you're gonna get that call to go up to the big leagues, and you're gonna walk in Yankee Stadium and wear those pinstripes. And tell that Robert in front of fifty thousand fans, can you even grasp that concept and and the emotions and how you're gonna feel and how you're gonna react and how you're gonna take it in? I can't. I can't even imagine. Honestly, I can't even imagine. It's, it's, I think it's going to be incredible, especially having, you know, my family there. It's just going to be a big, big moment. Yeah, I honestly can't even imagine when that time comes. I think I'll be ready. You know, I'll be ready to go. But until it comes, I really can't even, couldn't even imagine, you know, pitching in Yankee Stadium. All right, welcome back, Nathan. Let's talk a little bit about Justice Sheffield. You oh, you a went name down that is on the tip <laughs> of everyone's tongue. Obviously, you went down to Tennessee over the off season to spend some time with Justice in his hometown of Tullahoma. Yeah, tell us about it. Well, it was great. Um, got to spend a lot of time with Justice down there and meet uh, you know his family. Uh, they're a really tight knit family. He grew up. Uh, there was like three houses all right next to each other, surrounded by like fields, kind of farmland. And his family owned all three of those houses. It's like the uh, Godfather complex. <laughs> <laughs> now it's uh, just the two that they own. So uh, his parents live in one, and his grandparents live next door. Um, so they're all really tight, and you know it's a pretty tight knit community too. As we kind of learned, we started at his high school, where in 2014. He was named the uh, Gatorade National Player of the Year. So uh, he has a lot of really good memories of um, just 
growing up around there and how, you know, it's really where his career took off. For those who, who don't know, I guess if you're listening to the Yankees Magazine podcast, there's a pretty good chance you do know who Justice Sheffield is. But he's a, a minor league pitcher in our organization. He's currently the, the top-rated pitching prospect in our minor league system. And uh, so he's kind of been knocking on the door to the majors. He's getting close. He started the year in double-A, and after about a month or so there, uh, he was called up to triple-A, where uh, he's pitched pretty well so far. And, you know, in June, when Masahiro Tanaka hurt his hamstrings at City Field, that was, Justice was kind of the first name that came up, and everybody was wondering if the Yankees were going to bring him up. They ultimately decided that, you know, they think he needs a little more seasoning in the, in the minors first. But, you know, he, he's really close. His stuff is there. Um, I talked to CC Sabathia, who's kind of like, you know, his, his big league mentor, Who's justice as a lefty as well. Yeah, you know, they have a lot in common. They're both drafted by the Indians, had a lot of kind of pressure on them, I guess, maybe just as sort of a, a big name, you know, first round pick. So uh, they relate well, and although they're not very similar in stature, um, <laughs> CC's able to offer a lot of, you know, wisdom and experience. And he was saying that watching him this spring, you know, CC's convinced like his, his stuff is ready. You know, he's got command of his fastball, which sits in mid to high 90s, two secondary pitches uh, that are in the 80s. He, he thinks, you know, he's ready to get guys out at the big league level. Um, but there's just, you know, there's certain mental aspects of pitching that Justice might need to refine a little bit. You know, Justice, I've heard guys talk about him, like, saying that he has a closer's mentality. Like, he approaches every inning, starting from the first inning, as as if he were a closer. And, um, you know, in the minors, that probably works at, against certain teams and, and certain batters. But, you know, up here, guys are, aren't so free-swinging. And um, so that's the pitching side. But really, I mean, this story focuses on just, you know, I always am more interested to tell, especially in a case like this where we haven't seen him up here yet. So a lot of our readers might not know anything about Justice Sheffield. You know, kind of wanted to show who he is, where he's from, what he's all about. And uh, his his family and his, his brothers in particular, his older brother, uh, Jordan Sheffield, who is a right-handed pitcher in the Dodgers minor league organization and is 11 months older, you know, has played a, a really big role in, in Justice's life. Yeah, um, I think you do a really good job of kind of showing how they play off each other and build off each other's successes and and push each other to do better and I think that's that's really was your jumping off point in the story right Nate yeah you know Jordan kind of since being the older one always sort of set the bar and um you know they they're they're an athletic family I mean they're a baseball family (laughs) their dad played ball growing up and and even into college and stuff their mom was a softball player so you know baseball is in in their blood and uh you know, Jordan was a really naturally talented athlete, so Justice, you know, benefited from that, you know, trying to keep up with him and, and ultimately outdoing him in some ways, you know. And then heading into high school, Justice was kind of looking to prove himself. And Jordan, you know, had already made his mark on varsity as a freshman. And, uh, you know, Justice got that opportunity, and he, and he just ran with it. And we talked to their high school baseball coach, Brad White, who is now at another school in that area. And, you know, he said, if you had asked me, you know, early in their 
high school careers, which one's going to go to college and play for Vanderbilt and which one's going to get drafted out of high school, I would have said Jordan is the one who's going to go pro first. But, you know, ultimately things just kind of change and and Jordan hurt his arm in high school. He, He kind of missed a year of pitching, ended up going to Vanderbilt and, you know, having a successful college career there. Justice was slated to follow him there, had an offer to play at Vanderbilt, and, um, you know, Coach Corbin down there had been hot on his trail. But he ended up exceeding expectations and becoming this, you know, incredible high school pitcher and, you know, was a finalist for the National Player of the Year as a junior, came back as a senior in high school, had an even better year and won the award. And so, uh, you know, when you're made a first-round pick in the Major League Draft, he decided to go pro. Hey, who won the National Player of the Year that year that he was a finalist? Oh, just another current Yankee from the, that we got out of the uh, Indians organization, Clint Frazier. So, uh, yeah, those guys are always going to kind of be tied as well. You know, they ended up coming over to the Yankees in 2016 in the Andrew Miller deal. But kind of funny that it was uh, Frazier who won it in 2013 and Justice who won it in 2014. And now they're both Yankees. Both drafted by the Indians and then traded to the Yankees. Yeah. Funny how things work out. Yeah, for sure. What in your travels, the things you learn, the things you see, you know, what is chicken with dressing? <laughs> I, I asked that very question because I had never had it before. I had never heard of it. But it was delicious. It was like chicken with kind of like stuffing mixed in with it. It's hard to explain, but it was awesome. Justice's grandparents, who, like I said, they live next door, uh, Harold and Sandy Holloway, they prepared lunch for us. Or I guess maybe it was an early dinner, late lunch. So after we spent some time at Tullahoma High, we headed over to the uh, Sheffield slash Holloway compound <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and had an incredible meal and got to speak to them, uh, you know, each family member kind of one-on-one. We did interviews with the grandparents and the parents and uh, his brothers. And you got a sense of just how proud they all are of Justice. I mean, he's really a, a special kid. Like throughout high school, he got one grade lower than an A the entire four years he was in high school. And his mom said, you know, something to the effect of, like, he probably thought that, you know, a, a lot of people think athletes aren't very smart or they can't compete academically. And she thinks, you know, that really bothered Justice and it probably, you know, drove him to prove people wrong. And, um, you know, that was kind of part of who he is too, you know, always out to like kind of prove himself, prove that, you know, he's not just Jordan's little brother. Like he can do stuff on his own. That's obviously pretty impressive in its own right. I've had some chances uh, to hang out with Justice too um, over the years, certainly at spring training, the Arizona Fall League last year. Uh, One thing though was right after the trades happened in 2016, I was working on a story about that deadline. And I, you know, went out to Scranton to talk to Clint and I went to Tampa to talk to, you know, Gleyber Torres and Justice Sheffield. And this is, I think it was like August 8th, so it was literally about a week and a half after the deadline. I do my best to keep up with Yankees prospects. I can't really say that I know much about other teams, you know, top prospects in terms of anything other than their raw numbers. So, of course, you know, I'm frantically Googling and trying to figure out anything I can about these guys on the way down there. And you Google Justice Sheffield, and really quickly what comes up is kind of the one bad incident in his life. But when you're Googling trying to paint a picture of somebody and that's the impression you get, 
I walked in there to meet him, being like, I wonder what kind of what kind of dude this is. And I mean, he is just one of the most disarmingly nice and charming yeah. people I've ever spoken to. Same um, same impression with me because I did a story on him last year, mm-hmm. and same thing. The first thing you Google, uh, he was arrested in 2014. Was it? Yeah, I think it was maybe like 2015, uh, January of 2015. Yeah, January so of 2015. It was within like a few months after being drafted. Right. Like he had just kind of, I don't even know if he fully started his pro career, but mm-hmm. it, it was right after, you know, maybe six months or eight Still months Still a after teenager, being you yeah. know. It was, a, it was a one night he made a mistake, and it's, it's now the first thing that comes up when you Google him, unfortunately. But like you said, John, you go, you meet him, and he is so nice and humble and yeah. charming and just open and willing to talk to you and, and give you what you need and spend time with you and you're right he he's disarmingly nice yeah okay. how old is he right now i think he's 21 because I, I'll, I'll say look the arizona fall league is a young person's circuit obviously you know i mean last year when i went there Greg Bird was there as part of a rehab. So, you know, there are guys like that who are, you know, a little bit more established. But for the most part, you know, a guy like Justin Sheffield is going to be one of the old guys there. And I'll tell you, he was like the coach um, <laughs> on, in that group. You know, Jay Bell was the manager. But of the, whatever, six or seven Yankees who were there, like, you could tell that just, you know, he's not a tall guy and he's not an imposing guy. But there was just like a real alpha dog status to him. Not in the way he held himself above these guys in any way, but just you could tell they were all looking up to him. Mm-hmm. Um, he is just a good guy. He is a warm guy. Yeah. And he's, tal- he's talented. Yeah. I was wrong. He's 22. Oh, well. But, yeah, going back to that incident, um, you know, it's too bad that that's the first thing that comes up because, I mean, it's it was really out of character for him. You know, it was just one night where he kind of made a mistake and uh you know i talked to his family about it and um you know his father travis he uh he has a a barber chair set up in their garage and he would cut his three boys hair and you know he said that's where they had a a lot of their you know father-son talks and uh he always warned his boys about you know that there's like the three like deadly sins that (laughs) can get you into trouble when you're a young man it's like the perfume the alcohol and the car keys and, uh, you know, I, he gets drafted. He's probably, you know, got a little bit of money now. And something happened where, you know, he confronted somebody. He went to somebody's house and, uh, you know, he was arrested for aggravated burglary and violating the drinking age law because he was only 18 at the time. I mean, he basically just like, you know, went to somebody's house and, and, and threatened him over I think the perfume might have been involved there. And these are things you should not do. Right, right. This is not not condoned in any way, shape, or form. No. And and look, I mean, it could have been worse. You know, there's certainly been athletes who have done, had much worse transgressions. And There are certainly podcasters right now who have done dumber things than (laughs) this in this room. Absolutely. And eventually, like, it got knocked down to, I don't know, like trespassing and eventually expunged from his record. But, you know, it was really hard on him because, I mean, the couple of years leading up to that, he had done nothing but good. I mean, winning national awards. He was, like, the most popular guy in high school. He was the homecoming king. The town asked him to lead their Christmas parade. And then a few weeks later, this happens. And he was devastated. I mean, he felt like he had let down everybody. 
and neat. I think one of the best things you did in the story in telling in telling about this was demonstrating the way that like his recovery, if you will, his emotional recovery from this, a lot of that came from the town embracing him. Yeah. And these people who did know him over the years and knew who he was, knowing that just how out of character this was. Right, ready to forgive him for the mistake. Oh yeah. Before he forgave himself. I mean they basically like pulled him out of it. Yeah. You know, he went to his his old baseball coach and, you know, was kind of sheepish and said, you know, would it be all right, you know, if I came back and, and just worked out there? And he was like, Justice, we love you. You are always welcome here. And I think that kind of started to make him realize, like, okay, I have, it's not just my family who's still in my corner. You build, up, you build up a reservoir of goodwill for reason, for moments like this. And he had done that, and he continues to do it. And you can see the way that he, from your story, from speaking to him, how important it is to him to overcome the fact that Hillary, like you meant, that that's what you see on Google. Like, I mean, that only has to happen until something better happens, in a yeah. sense. So that was that was one of my you know main takeaways that I was trying to relay to our readers, just the type of person he is, the type of character he has. But I also, I mean, I heard so many stories too about just his work ethic and the drive he has. Like, he's not thinking, oh, I'm gonna you know just make it to the major leagues, like. He wants to get here and make a big impact and have a long career and be an ace. And uh, he's really, I mean, starting from the time when he was, you know, in high school and first started realizing that, like, oh, you know, I might have something here with this pitching thing. Like, I'm, I'm a, a freshman and a sophomore and I'm getting everybody out. Um, he really took it seriously. You know, he, he quit other playing other sports. I was talking to um, a former big leaguer down there. This actually didn't make it into the story, but um, a former big leaguer by the name of Brian Morris is from Tullahoma, and he was at the high school that day. He's now, I think, the pitching coach for the high school team there. And he was saying how, like, Justice used to show up at his door, like, before high school at, like, 5 in the morning and, like, train with him and go running and stuff. Um, so he's really serious about getting better and and you know cc said the same thing like he's got a real hunger to just whatever he can do to get better you know he's asking questions he's not just sitting back saying oh you know i was i was the national player of the year back in high school you know i got this like no he's committed to to making this happen i'm excited for when he eventually does make it to the oh, major yeah. leagues. And I know CeCe is too. Yeah. He said, whether I'm playing or not playing anymore, I'm going to be watching. Yep. So uh, great job with the story, Nate. Like John and I said, we've both spent time with him. Now you spent time with him. I think we all came away with the same impression. Like this is a good guy mm-hmm. who's really good at baseball and just wants to play on the Yankees. And hopefully he'll get here soon. Yeah, he's one of these guys that's going to be really easy to root for when he gets here. So hopefully uh, we'll see him soon and when he does i'm I'm confident that good things are going to follow nice it's called tough love it's in the july issue of yankees magazine which is on newsstands now so check it out thanks so much for joining us today uh follow us on twitter at yanks magazine like and subscribe and rate the podcast and email us podcast at yankees.com give us your feedback we love to hear it Thanks. Let's get some five-star reviews, too. Five-star reviews would be nice. Put a five-star review in and send us a screenshot of it. And, I mean, you know, who knows? Who knows what we can do to make that worth your while? <laughs> We're leaving it. We're leaving this open-ended. We'll see. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon.
Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team.